Well, uh, we're in the Gospel of John. We're going to look at chapter 14 this morning. And uh, we're going to look at 14, chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Um, and this morning we're going to talk about how to cope when your world falls apart. I've told you the story uh, in brief, but I want to tell you the story in a little bit, with a little bit more uh, color this morning. I'm talking a number of weeks ago to my mom and dad. There they are up on the screen. My father's about 90 years old now. My mom's 86. Talking to them on the phone, and all of a sudden I hear a bump. And my dad gets on the phone and he says, your mom is falling on the floor. I need to call 911. He gets off the phone. They call 911. My mom had had a major stroke. And uh, while she was on the floor, completely conscious, she realized one half of my body, I can't feel my arm. I can't, I can't feel the entire half of my body. She's completely conscious, but she's thinking, I can't feel an entire half of my body. Ordinarily, my mom would have panicked big time, as we all would over this. But my mom did not panic big time because of something that had happened two weeks prior to that. Two weeks prior to that, one of her good friends challenged her to memorize and meditate on Psalm 41, verse 10. Here's that psalm. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, my mom has memorized verses through the years, but I wouldn't say she was ever an avid memorizer. But at that moment, um, she decided that she would, when she was challenged, she would memorize that verse. She wrote it down on a three-by-five card. She carried it with her, and she would walk in the morning memorizing Isaiah 41.10. So as she has her stroke and she's lying on the floor totally out of control, guess where her mind goes? Isaiah 41, 10. So um, she continued to think about that as the ambulance came. She continued to think about that as she was in these very claustrophobic machines that bang and bump and, you know, MRIs. And she's, she has no fear. She should have felt fear. Ordinarily, you, you, would, you would feel fear. She was asked to sign papers with her good arm to receive medicines with potentially drastic side effects, no fear. She was acutely aware of her lingering powerlessness on one side of her body, no fear. Isaiah 41.10 was playing over and over and over and over again in her mind. Now, fortunately, she got to the hospital very quickly, and they gave her the clot-busting drugs and over the course of the next several hours, the feeling began to come back into her arm and into her side. I would call her, and she was lucid, no slurring, um, but she kept, she kept telling me that she was hopeful, and she kept telling me she was riveted on, on Isaiah 41, verse 10. So fast forward two weeks from that. Two weeks after the stroke, she meets with a doctor. He tests her strength, her mobility, her range of movements. After the checkup, the doctor says these words, Lucy, I believe you have encountered a total recovery from a very serious stroke. 
And then he said, I, I think this qualifies as a miracle. Glory. So here, here's, a, here's a trained scientist using the M word. <laughs> using the M word. And um, I, can't, I can't tell you my joy over that. But also my joy over what happened after that. Because they're in retirement community and they're walking around the retirement community and somebody would say, Lucy, I heard you had a, you had a stroke. And she said, yeah, I did. She, well, you don't look like there's any, any side effects. There's not. And she would tell them about her faith in Christ. God gave her, God gave her a story. And God, you know, I love it that God in, well, Jesus in the New Testament, whenever he heals people, gives them a story. Whenever he intervenes in their life, he gives them a story. And my mom, my mom was the recipient of a story that she's using to advance the cause of Christ in her sphere of influence. Isaiah 41.10 quelled my mother's anxiety. The passage we're looking, looking at this morning, what we see is that disciples are filled with anxiety over the fact that Jesus is leaving. He's telling them, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. And they have no category for this at all. So Jesus is going to tell them how to manage their anxiety over his leaving. And as he does this, he gives us, 2,000 years later, insights about how we manage our anxiety when our anxiety spins out of control. And the way we're going to look at this, we're going to start off with the command and then some tools that he gives us, and then we'll look at some takeaways. But we, we begin with, with a command. Jesus begins with a very specific, and I would add a very loving mandate. And the mandate is this, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. In six words, Jesus has said something extraordinary about our state of mind and anxiety. He's saying that our, our mindset can be troubled. The Greek word indicates seas that are stirred up by a storm. Seas that are stirred up by a storm. I'm sure you've encountered something like this. Perhaps you've been on a lake or in a sailboat uh, and the wind shifts. And these little tendrils of light breezes begin to morph into gusts of wind and the wind churns the seas up into a storm. I've been in some boats like that. Maybe you have as well. I hope you can picture troubled waters because that's what the word troubled means. And Jesus is applying this to our minds. And what Jesus is saying is sometimes our minds can be churned up. It's like these little tendrils of concern morph into anxiety and the anxiety morphs into a panic attack, and pretty soon our insides are all churned up. That is a, a heart that is troubled. Now, I want to pause for a second, and think. I want you to think about how anxiety works in the year 2018. In the past 10 years, I have had a surprising number of men approach me, and they said something like this, Rod, I've never told anybody this before, but and then they'll, they'll describe a panic attack. For example, one person, very, very high-functioning individual, told me he was on, an, on, an, on the airplane going from Houston, maybe back to Tulsa, I'm not sure. And he said, all of a sudden, my, my heart is racing. 
I, I start to sweat. Uh, I can feel my pulse. My, I think I'm, I'm having a heart attack. And I, 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 there's a doctor on the plane. The doctor checks me out. He says, I'm, you're not having a heart attack, but go to the emergency room. I, I get to Tulsa. I go to the emergency room. I'm not having a heart attack. The doctor says you're having a panic attack. And he, he said, that, that was almost worse. He said, I, I, don't, I don't deal with anxiety. And the doctor said, apparently you do. Apparently you do. I, I have heard that story replayed dozens of times by people who tell me that I'm the first person they, they told it to. Another friend said that he was in his law office and he was working on a case and the pressure was building and one afternoon he burst into tears in his office. And he said, I don't cry. And I burst into tears. He said, I felt, I felt such shame over this. And those two incidents are just the, the tip of the iceberg. Both men and women have told me they've encountered these. These are, these are what we would call panic attacks. And they often happen on people who are very high-functioning, reasonably intelligent individuals. So why is that happening in the year 2018? Why is that happening more in 2018 than it was in 1818 or 1418 or 1218? Well, part of the reason why is that we live in a world of increased pressure and decreased physical activity. And as that pressure builds, we don't have the corresponding physical activity to release that pressure physically, and it gets, it gets lodged in our body, and it comes out as anxiety, and it feels shameful. As my friend who is a lawyer said, if I collapsed in tears at my desk, who's to say that I wouldn't collapse in closing arguments in the trial? That would kill my practice. Now he's got anxiety coupled with catastrophic thinking. That's how anxiety works, and that's how the disciples are feeling as Jesus is saying, I'm leaving, <laughs> I'm leaving. And, and they're thinking, uh, we've left everything we have to follow you. Like, we've, we've, we've left businesses. We've left, we've left everything, to, and, you, and you're, you're leaving. What? What's going to happen? So Jesus offers a solution, and his solution seems totally wrong to us, totally wrong. He says, let not your heart be troubled. And it almost sounds as if Jesus is saying, stop it. Stop the anxiety. You may remember the old Bob Newhart comedy clip. You may remember that where, where a woman comes, he's a psychiatrist, plays a psychiatrist on the Bob Newhart show, and a woman comes in and she, she says, I'm, I'm dealing with so much anxiety, and Bob Newhart says, I'm going to give you two words. This works for everybody. Two words. Two words. You can pay me. You're, you're, you're out of here. Two words. Stop it. She's, and she's like taken aback, like, what? what? Stop it. You want to be dealing with this for the rest of your life? Stop it. It almost sounds like that's what Jesus is saying. Stop it. But Jesus is not saying that because of the use of the word heart. Um, the heart in the Bible is not the place of your feelings. It's not the place where you think things. The heart is the place where you choose things. The heart is our executive center. 
The heart is the place where we make choices. The heart is the place from which I exercise my will. The heart in the Bible is my chooser. It's my chooser. And what Jesus is saying, make a choice to do something. Okay? What? Well, he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus has just incorporated two members of the Trinity. He's going to incorporate the third member of the Trinity in a little while. What Jesus is saying is that I want you to believe in the Father, believe in me. He will talk about believing in the Trinity. What he's saying is make a choice to move into relational nearness to the triune God. So here, here, here's the command. The command, when anxiety comes, I make a choice to turn toward a person. I make a choice to turn toward Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I make a choice to move toward the triune God, the community that loves me unconditionally. I make that choice. Think about it this way. Um, I have two daughters, and uh, I'll just use one of them, Kristen. Um, years ago, when our girls were little, my daughter, Kristen, might have a nightmare. And she would climb out of her bed with her blanket. She would go across the hall into our bedroom, and she would climb into our bed between us, and she would promptly fall asleep. Why? because she was incorporated into the safety of mom and dad. That ameliorated her anxiety. It lessened and quelled her anxiety. So guess what happens with her now? Her, her little kids, anxious, nightmares. They get out of their bed with the little blankets. They climb up between her and her husband, and they fall asleep. Why is that? It's because... There's nearness to the people who will protect her, okay? So what Jesus is saying is when you encounter anxiety, here, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to choose to move into the sphere of the love of the triune God. That's the command. So now you say, okay, easier said than done, right? <laughs> easier said than done. It'd be tempting to say, okay, pray once and voila, the anxiety's gone. Nope, doesn't work that way. So what Jesus now does is he gives them some disciplines. He gives them four tools that allow us to trust God even in our anxiety. Here's discipline number one, eternal perspective. Jesus promises a place in heaven. He says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. If we're not so, I would, would I have told you? that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Now remember, in the Gospel of John, Jesus presents eternal life as a present possession. You don't have to wait till heaven to get eternal life. You have it right now. But it is also an eternal possession and it's something that you will gain in heaven in a different, in a different way. And he says two, thing, two things about heaven. He says that Jesus is preparing a place for you right now. He's preparing a place, like right now, like at 10.05, Sunday morning, the 20th of October, he is preparing a place for you right now. 
So when I was growing up, my father was working in the corporate world, and we moved, I think, seven times before I was 18 years old. And every time we moved, uh, my mom did something that I have vivid memories of. I don't, I'm not sure she would remember it, but I have vivid memories of it. We would get into the new house, and my mom would say, here's the room we've picked out for you, and here's why. Now, I don't know what they were thinking or what she was thinking, but that was a very honoring thing. Here's your room. I had, I had three younger sisters. I was the only boy, so I got my own room. Here's your room, and here's why. That was a very honoring thing. And Jesus is doing the same thing for you right now. He's preparing a place for you right now, and it is, it is a place that is honoring of you and your wiring the way you're put together. It's honoring of you. When you, when you see that place, you're going to go, yes, this is me. This is, this, is what, this is what I want. Notice also that Jesus is saying, I'm coming back to take you to that place. I'm coming back, and in the original language, it's, it's, it's very, very definite that I'm coming back for you. I'm coming back for you. Rod, I'm coming back for you, Cindy. I'm coming back for you, Caleb. I'm coming back for you, Jared. I'm coming back for you personally. So what does it have to do with anxiety? When you face anxiety, focus on eternity. Focus on the fact that you are loved now by God. Focus on the fact that He has a place for you in heaven. Focus on the fact that what He has for you in heaven is going to wipe away every tear and going to bring you into a place of your full humanity. Think about it this way. Let's suppose that you had a brother who was a home builder. And the home builder says, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to take care of the whole thing. So your, your brother, who's the home builder, begins to build you this house. And sure enough, it, this, is, this is your dream home. I mean, you, you will love this. Why, why are you doing this for me, you say? Because you're family and you have a need. Wow, thank you. The dream house is going up. Now, while you're in your old house and the air conditioning doesn't work and the heating doesn't work and the floors are creaking and the doors don't fit, are you, are you going to be complaining about those things in your current house? Are you going to be stressing out over those things? Not so much. Because over here, you've got this wonderful place that's being built that's going to satisfy every need. So one of the ways that you quell the anxiety is making eternity very real. That's tool number one. Here's tool number two. Tool number two is focusing on positional truth. So this discipline deals with the present. Discipline number one deals with the future. This one deals with the present. When you face anxiety, affirm Jesus as the center of your life, as a cornerstone of your identity. Notice what happens, what happens next. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know the way you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, we often use this verse in affirming that Jesus is the way to the Father, the only way to the Father. We often use this verse in Christian apologetics to affirm the uniqueness of the pathway to the Father. But in context, what Jesus is doing is, is He's saying, I am the source and the center of your journey throughout life. As you move throughout life, I am the way. I, I'm the one, the pathway 
I, I am the truth. I am the life. So what he's saying is, I want you, Thomas, to keep me at the center. I want you to keep me as the source and center of all that you are, the source and center of your identity. So how does this work with anxiety? No matter how stormy the circumstances are around me, I remember my identity in Christ. I remember my identity. My identity is safe and secure because of who Jesus is. Another example. Imagine that you are the younger brother of Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes. Imagine you are the younger brother of that quarterback. Imagine that it's Super Bowl Sunday, and imagine that the Chiefs are playing somebody else. And imagine you're the younger brother. You're 10 years old. Mahomes is 23. And your brother says, I want you on the sideline with me, and here's, here's a jersey that has Mahomes on the back. Now, what's going to happen to all the other Chiefs players? They're going to be high-fiving you. Hey, oh, I'm so glad you're here. So, so glad you're here. You have status on the sideline. Why? Because you're such a good football player at age 10? No. Because you're identified with Super Bowl quarterback Patrick. I'm not making any prophetic statements. <laughs> Hear me on this, okay? Because you're identified with the quarterback. Now, that's you right now, right? Because your status is based upon the fact that Jesus was victorious. Jesus is in heaven. Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is the one who scored a great victory. And you are identified with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and you're seated with him at the right hand of the Father. You have, you have an identity. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and you are on that path. Now we come to the next discipline. Next discipline is, is relational closeness, relational closeness. In John 14, verse 5, Thomas asks a question. Now in verse 8, Philip asks a question. And Philip's question, Philip's question is, um, God, show us, show us the Father. Now, short question, but th th that is, that is, that's the hunger of the human heart. I mean, what did Moses say? Moses said, God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory, God. Show it to me. I want to see it. And God, God said, well, I can't show you my full glory. It'd be too much. And so Philip, in that same vein, says, show, show us the Father. And here's what Jesus says. Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't know me? I, I hear maybe a hint of sadness in, in Jesus' statement here. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? These words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus has one simple point in these, these verses. Philip, every time you encounter my presence you are also encountering the Father's presence. The spiritual presence of the Father was all around Jesus. It permeated everything that he did. And when we encounter Jesus, we've encountered 
all of the triune God. In fact, he says that a little bit later on in the Upper Room Discourse. Now, let me, let me point out something to you. Remember how I often say to you that God's presence is right here, right now. Like there's a lot of invisible things that are real. We can't see them, but we know that they're real. Oxygen, we can't see it, but we breathe it. We know it's real. We can't see gravity, but we know it's real. We can't see antimatter, but we know it's real. We can't see dark, the dark matter in the universe, but we know it's real. We can't see emotions, but we certainly know emotions are real. There are real things around us that we can't see. We all know that. We all know that. What Jesus seems to be saying in this verse, big picture, big idea, is that the spiritual presence of God is all around us all the time. And to encounter the invisible presence of Jesus is to also encounter the invisible presence of the Father, and also to encounter the invisible presence of the Holy Spirit. It's to encounter the entire triune God. So one of the ways we, we deal with anxiety is that we, we move into the invisible presence of the triune God. How in the world do you do that? Well, you know what? It starts by saying, Lord Jesus, you're here. Lord Jesus, I trust that you are all around me. Holy Spirit, I trust that you are in me. You affirm what you know to be true. And God often takes those affirmations and then begins to quell those emotions. And now the last discipline. This one is amazing, where we seize our purpose in life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let me give you two quick observations about this promise. First, Jesus promises we'll do the same kind of works that he did. So what, what, did, what works did Jesus did? Well, Jesus prayed. We can pray. Jesus taught. No, we can, we can teach. Jesus proclaimed the availability of the kingdom. We can do that. He encouraged people. We can do that. He touched people with appropriate physical touch. He loved people with supernatural power. We can do all those things. And yes, Jesus also did miracles. And Jesus is promising we're going to do the same kind of works that he did. That means the normal Christian life, if you're walking in the power of the Spirit, is that you will do things in the supernatural. Paul calls that the normal Christian life in Ephesians 2.10. He says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That means that God is pouring out those works upon us so that we can walk in those works that he has already planned and prepared for us to do. Observation number one is that we're going to do the works Jesus did. Observation number two is that Jesus says, you're going to do greater works than I did. Okay? So greater works could mean greater in number, uh, Jesus focuses his ministry on the earth for three years. Some people will, will have more than three years to serve Christ. Greater works could mean greater in scope. Jesus ministered in Israel. Um, 
we're here in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, you know, we're, we're beyond the borders of a particular geographical location in the ancient world. But I will tell you that greater works definitely means supernatural power. Uh, the word works in the Gospel of John refers to supernatural works um, over 10 times. We're talking miracles. So when Jesus talks about greater works, the most natural way to take this is that we will be involved in doing things that have supernatural results. Some of those results we're going to see. Some of those results we are not going to see. I had a situation some time ago where I reconnected with somebody I hadn't seen since my college days. And that person told me about a comment that I had made to them in the fraternity house that had shifted and changed their life. It was the product of a, a long relationship, but that had changed their life. And he told me about the trajectory of his life after this had happened, and it just, just blew me away, blew me away. I had no idea that God used me in that way, but he did. And that guy has uh, been in the Philippines now for about 30 years, led many, many people to Christ in the Philippines. And he said, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that that time in the fraternity house was a significant thing that you did in my life. I didn't know that for a long, for decades, okay? Sometimes you will do greater works and you will have no idea that you did them. Other times you will do greater works and you will, you will know that you have done something extraordinary and God has dramatically answered prayer as a result of what you did and the faithfulness uh, that you have. Now, at this point, I want to pull the stick back on the plane and I want to look at, at the big picture. The big picture is this. When you face anxiety, you're invited into God's presence, number one, to live with an eternal perspective, two, to seize your position in Christ and live it to draw relationally close to the Father, and to live out your purpose with power. That's, those are the tools that Jesus says that we use to address our anxiety. Now, before we move on to the takeaways, I just have to say one thing. This is, is happening every Monday at Celebrate Recovery. Amen. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I was at Celebrate Recovery, and two-step studies had gotten, gotten finished. And men's group and women's group, and the, the word that I heard most often was the, the T word, transformation. That's what I heard. And I, the Lord, I just have to tell you, the Lord is using Celebrate Recovery to do some, some greater works. Uh, we have healing prayer sessions, sometimes two to three times a week, and we have seen some Extraordinary things take place in those healing prayer sessions, things that have, have just amazed me at God's presence and what God's presence does to bring hope and healing. So, let me move to the takeaways. Three takeaways when your world falls apart. Takeaway number one, if you encounter serious anxiety, consider professional help. I'm a big believer and seeing a counselor, a doctor, a coach, a psychiatrist. I know some pastors get a little weird about this. Um, they say, if you don't know Christ, you don't need a counselor. Jesus is all you need. Well, Jesus is all you need, but sometimes you need a coach who's trained in a particular area. Cindy and I have had three seasons of our life where we have been in marriage counseling, and we 
uh, would do it again in a heartbeat if we needed to. That culture, that culture of going to marriage counseling somehow, somehow got transferred to our kids because our kids have told us that they've gone to see counselors. And I'm, and I'm thinking, thank the Lord for that. That's, that's what I want. That's what I want. So if you encounter serious anxiety, get help. Get help. Um, sometimes people encounter anxiety because they've they got PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Sometimes people struggle with anxiety because of chemical imbalances in their body. Sometimes they occur because of guilt or shame. But a wise counselor can help. But I got two caveats. And caveat number one is sometimes it takes a while to find the right one. So don't go see a counselor and say, well, that, that person didn't help. This is not for me. It takes time to find a good counselor. Take the time that it takes. If you have a real need, take the time that it takes. And sometimes the spouse has got to be the one to say, honey, honey, if this one didn't work, let's, let's find another one over here. Amen. And that's, that's an important thing. Counseling is good by itself sometimes, but you also need the body of Christ in addition to the counseling to really get the help that you need. So that's takeaway number one. If you encounter serious anxiety, consider professional help. Number two is recognize the answer is not a magic pill or a single prayer. And this is a really important thing um, to recognize. Um, I am currently training, as, as you know, because I've ta talked about this a lot, my son and daughter-in-law's dog named Watson. Uh, we're also getting some help from a professional trainer. Um, he is a handful. And the professional trainer says he is a, Mal a Belgian Malinois hound mix. He's a handful. Now, if I say to Watson, sit, does, does Watson sit? No. <laughs> if, I, if I say, Jesus, will you please help Watson sit? Is Watson going to sit? Well, God could do a miracle, okay? But it doesn't happen because I've tried that. <laughs> Watson needs training. So there's my little, my little clicker and my, my treats. And Cindy is about to, th to throw the clickers out because I'm, I'm bothering Cindy with the clickers. But I, but I have to train Watson to do certain things. The same thing is true with dealing with anxiety. Sometimes what you have to do is you have to train yourself with those anxious thoughts. So you've heard about post-traumatic stress disorder. There's another thing called post-traumatic growth. And I've just been learning about this. And post-traumatic growth is the growth that comes through the trauma. And I've talked to a lot of people who have gone through post-traumatic stress disorder counseling, and they say, well, I just, I have PTSD, as, this, as if that's something I'm always going to have. And what people are doing now is they're realizing, no, I, I can have PTG, I can have post-traumatic growth. And part of what post-traumatic growth is, is it's doing those disciplines that retrain the circuitry in your brain to think the right kinds of thoughts. Glory. So in my relationship with my wife, I am constantly striving to honor her. Over the course of 10 to 15 years, that's rewired the circuitry in my brain so that I feel that honor 
and it is a delight to speak those honoring words. Okay, so it's really important to, to, to remember that part of dealing with anxiety is training. That's why Jesus gives us four disciplines. And then the final takeaway is this. You've got to be in community. If you want to deal with anxiety well, you've got to be in community. Those, those guys who told me, I haven't told anybody else this, but, but they, were not, they weren't, weren't in community. They thought they were the only ones that dealt with that. So then when I told them, oh, let me just tell you, that's very common. I've, I've talked to dozens of guys who are between the ages of maybe 39 and 49 who have their first panic attack and they think, oh my gosh, what's going on with me? I'm going to lose my job. It's, it's going to be terrible. I say, look, you're, you're one of many people I've talked to who go through this. And when men and women, but men don't talk <laughs> for the most part, when men, when men get together with other men and they, they express what, what's going on, now, that, now they've got a support team where guy number one says, man, I'm, I'm really going through it right now. I, 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 I'm having a panic attack. Guy number two can say, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. You know, it's going to pass. It's going to pass. You, you're going to be okay. You're going to be all right. And, and then the community helps them to deal with the anxiety. That's so important. You've got to be in community. So my mom encountered a worst-case scenario. She had a stroke that left her left side paralyzed on one side. People prayed. She received fantastic medical care. But she did something else. She used a discipline to quell her fearful thoughts. That discipline was Isaiah 41.10. We need disciplines done in the Spirit, done in communion with Christ, but we need disciplines that will help us quell the anxiety. And Jesus gives us four. Cultivate an eternal perspective. Make Jesus your life. Draw near to the Father and start doing the works that Jesus did in his strength. Let's stand for our closing prayer. And Paul is going to come forward and pray for us. Word. Great word. Thank you. Now in prayer, after, after prayer, we, we will have part of the prayer team up here at the front to pray for, your, pray for you if you need prayer for healing or for any other thing in your life. <clears throat> Let's bow. Father God, thank you. Thank you this morning that through your scripture, <clears throat> through your spirit, <clears throat> through Pastor Rod, that you would bring us a message, uh, a really vital message that we can take out of here and uh, be comforted to... Help us guide our lives to reach into the lives of others. Father, I pray that today you've challenged us. And I pray because of your challenge, I, I would pray that each of us, each and every one of us would choose to take the words of Jesus to heart, to let not our hearts be troubled. I pray that we would choose, <clears throat> Father, to trust in eternity, not only believing that we're all going to gather again in heaven at some point, but to believe that there's heaven on earth, to believe that we can live in it, to believe the prayer that Jesus prayed, Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we call answered prayer. That's what we call miracles. Touch us, Lord, with your heaven. Lord Jesus, you said you would never leave us nor forsake us. 
and that nothing, your word says nothing, nothing can ever separate us from your love. So I pray, Lord, that everyone here would choose to set some of our thoughts, some of our agenda aside and to seek your thoughts about our lives and about those around us and that we would choose to pray into those thoughts so that the Jesus present in us would complete the Father's will in us and through us to those we love. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.